This is exactly right. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hello and welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. Hello. Uh, every week we talk about an episode of SVU, the true crime it's based on. And then we have a guest from the episode. And, you know, at the top we, we chit chat, we catch up, we pretend we don't see each other all the time. It's cozy season. Is that what this is? <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like Thanksgiving week always feels like kind of just like really chill and like you're just prepping to like eat food. But I also don't travel a lot on Thanksgiving and I know that you do. And so I think Thanksgiving travel sounds more stressful, but I don't know what you think. I just don't care because I know what's going on. So to me, it's <laughs> like it's going to be a packed day. I'll get there a little early. Like people that get stressed out about things that are always the same confuse me. Yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> one time I did fly for Thanksgiving, like 5 a.m. on Thursday, and then I left Friday at like 6 a.m. It was just a one-day affair. Sure. But they didn't open security yet. And there, so we were just all in a line waiting for security to open. And there was a family that I wanted to stab in the neck. They just like, <laughs> the parents kept being like, oh my God, is the line going to move? What's going to happen? Where's it going to go? And it's like, the airport knows when to open. Like, we'll all be okay. The planes yeah, can't yeah, yeah. all leave without us. And then they had kids there. And I'm like, you're teaching your kids to be annoying, stressed out losers too. Yes. You're training a new generation of bad travelers. Yeah, like you could play a game with your kid. Get heads up out. I don't know. If, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's so much you could talk to your kid about instead of being like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Are we going to make the flight? And it's like, who cares? I yeah. Know. I just, yeah. I am annoyed that I have layovers because of fucking Delta, but whatever. I know. Fucking Delta, man. Layovers <sighs> kill me. I'm on a midnight flight tonight. 
kill me. But that's not for... Oh, to Florida. To, not Florida. To New York. You wouldn't go to Florida. <laughs> I mean, I would. My family is in Florida, but a lot of my family. But um, I have not been to Florida in a couple of years because of the old pandy. But... Um, well, that's what I meant. I don't think you would... Re- I don't think you would go to Florida. Actually, maybe you would. You don't care. Not right now. But in the new year, 2022, Florida's not <laughs> off limits for me. <laughs> I've already been to Texas. I had an Uber driver. He goes, oh, Texas, the land of the free, not committed to tyranny. Anti-vaxxer. Okay. Um, and at okay. the end of the trip, I just went, I just, I don't agree with you. And he goes, I know. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was right. He goes, the vax, the vax. And I go, I don't know. I had to get vaccines for school, so I don't really care. And he goes, it's different. I go, how's it different? Didn't have a reason. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these yeah. people it's are not out different. of control. Right. <laughs> I just, I have so many vaxes shot. If I, go, if I go to the doctor and they tell me to get a shot, I'll put it. I don't, Yeah. I don't understand. I take a pill. I don't know what's in it. I have no idea. Yeah, I just got boosted a couple days ago and I felt I had no reaction except my arm really hurt, but that happened last time. And my kid was just slamming me in the arm all fucking day. I kept going, (laughs) Rosie, I have a shot. I had a shot. And she's like, oh. And then she would rub it gently like she was trying to like help me. And then she would just like kick me in the arm again, which sounds just like her. Sounds like parenthood. Yeah. (laughs) No, it sounds like Rosie. Yeah, it's very Rosie. Stay out of her fucking way. (laughs) No, but like when you're talking about teaching kids like the cycle, like today I was taking her to school and this guy fucking did a U-turn in the intersection. Like, and I almost hit him. It could have been me. No, I mean... Like, I wouldn't recognize you in your car. Um, I did a U-turn in the middle of the intersection twice this morning. No, and that's like, you know, on a street where there's like, that's not really a lot going on. This was like a packed, this is the packed way that you get from Highland Park to Eagle Rock. It's like very busy in the morning and it's a psychotic move. And I was just like, oh, you fucking idiot. And Rosie's like, what happened? And I'm like, nothing. I apologize. I shouldn't have yelled like that. Like I'm trying to like not raise another like generation of road rage maniacs, you know? Yeah, I was late to boxing and I just could not find a parking spot and it was fucking killing me. And I was a maniac. But, you know, I showed up to class late and guess what? It didn't matter. So next time I'll relax. (laughs) I really want to get back into boxing. I love it so much. It is. Everyone's so hot and has tattoos. And I just like like the vibe of these guys in a dingy gym because it is dingy. I go to a dingy Mm. one and I enjoy that. I mean, I don't think they'd like to be heard that they're dingy, but (laughs) (laughs) they're fucking dingy. But I honked at a guy in a Beamer and then he found a spot before me and waved. He was like, hey, and waved to me as he walked to boxing. And I went, what do you want? And yeah, so then we had to do class together. Oh my God, you're getting in fights in the parking lot and then boxing with people. You're wild, Lisa. Oh, I mean, I used to swim laps in New York and I got into too many fights and I had to stop going to the to the place. It was, it, because to me, there's rules. If you touch someone's feet, it's like you, you step aside and you let someone do a flip turn and go ahead of you. Yeah. And these people were just dilly dallying and not letting me go. And it's like, what are you doing here? What are you doing? <laughs> Let me go. Yeah, you got to know the fucking rules. You got to let me go. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Is this even a good intro? I feel. Who knows? (laughs) Listen, I want to touch on Britney Spears being freed. I know at this point it happened like at this point it will have happened like 10 days ago. But listen, we can't not touch on it. We love we stand our queen Britney. I'm so excited. I she she hadn't posted on Instagram like since it happened. And I was like. 
oh, is this a sign that her Instagram is run by other people and that now that she's free? But then she started posting a bunch of wacky shit and I was like, she's back, she's back, it's her. Yeah, sweaty lipsticks. I was at a baby shower with fellow Exactly Right podcaster from Lady to Lady, Tess Barker, and her and Babs Gray, I don't know if we all know this, have a podcast called Toxic that's like a full investigatory podcast about Britney's whole journey. And they've been huge in the Free Britney movement. They started the Facebook group. I think they had an original podcast called Britney's Graham that was a podcast all about Britney's Instagram. And they kind of like were huge figures. They're in the documentary that the New York Times did like there. So I saw her at this baby shower and I was like, what a time for you. Like, I was like, do you think it's basically the way people talk to us about Mariska. I'm like, do you guys think you'll meet her now? Like, you know, I'm like very excited for them. Um, Annalise, our sound engineer, told us that they went to the celebratory party that Babs and Tess threw, and they played Bye 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 by Justin Timberlake and the whole crowd booed, (laughs) which I love. Yeah, why would they play JT? I mean, I listen to Tearing Up My Heart a lot. I like that one. No, I'm really happy for Britney, um, and I can't wait. Yeah, she wrote something like Hailey Bieber dressed like her for Halloween, so now her kids think she's cool. I know. It's like, how do you not know your mom's cool, you guys? But that's like the trope. Like, people go on late night talk shows all the time, and, you know, their whole thing is like, my kid thinks I'm a loser. They don't care. I'm famous. (laughs) And uh, I'm sure it's hard for celebrities who get their asses kissed at all times. Yeah, that's like why celebrities are like, I did a voice in a Paw Patrol movie, so my kids would think I'm cool, but I really like Emma a fucking Oscar-winning actor or whatever. <laughs> is, is Rosie still on the Paw Patrol movement? Yeah, she's full on. And Guy Branna, my friend who's a comedian, came to my house and brought her some Paw Patrol shit. So now I don't, now I don't have to for Christmas, which I'm excited about. Oh, yeah, holiday. Oh, well, I'm excited. So for Thanksgiving, I will... Oh, yeah, what's your... So I'm going to be staying... You know the condo that I stayed in throughout pandemic in the winter of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be staying there with my nephew and his college roommate. Ooh, reuniting with all the Judaica on the yeah. walls. <laughs> but I'm excited. <laughs> and there's a balcony. So I'm debating if I should smoke some weed with my nephew or not. Um, so I'm going to see if I feel because I don't know. I don't know if that's like cool or not. But his parents like partake right yeah yeah we're we're potheads it's a pretty progressive family in terms of that kind of thing yeah i'm excited and i want to like bring him like eats food all i don't know we'll see and then i'm also uh my friend cole cabana um is an aew and uh that'll be in chicago that weekend so oh cool so I'll, i'll get to watch him wrestle so i'm really excited so it'll be wrestling and then i signed up for the 90 minute soul cycle i paid extra to sign up on time to make sure i get a seat in skokie And I will be doing the 90-minute ride. So I've never done it. If you're in Skokie and you want to do 90 minutes of SoulCycle with Lisa, sign up now, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. But then I know I'm just going to fucking go ham and feel so good. And I'm excited. Yeah, it's going to be great. And then you can like kind of, don't you think you can kind of like then do whatever you want at Thanksgiving? That's what I meant when I said go ham. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I thought you meant like, I thought you meant like feel the music at SoulCycle (laughs) and like get fucking sweaty as fuck. Like go through six masks. No, I'll be real. No, I don't think you have to wear masks in Chicago. Maybe you do. In Skokie, I don't know if there's a mask mandate like in LA. It's like, I'm an anti-masker now. It's really, I don't know how this happened. I'm almost there. I'm not yet, but like, I'm kind of like, LA, when are we going to like drop? Because I want to get back to the gym, like I said, and I don't think I can work out with a mask. You can. You're making excuses. You can work out with a mask. Lisa, I like can barely breathe regularly when I work out. You think we're made different? We're human. You can do it. I have asthma. 
asthma. I forgot. I didn't know. I didn't know your. If I had asthma, I'd be talking about it all the time. You're so secretive about it. I, I keep my know. inhaler in my purse where you can't find it. Yeah. Um, wait, I love that. But can you also plug what you're doing at Thanksgiving? Because aren't you going to be in San Francisco right after? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, Friday, Saturday, I'm in San Francisco at the Punchline. It's a dream to headline there. It's really like such an amazing club if you live in San Francisco or anywhere in the Bay Area. It's such a fun club. Lise is obviously amazing at stand-up. Like, don't, this would be like a Thanksgiving treat. So you should all go. Yeah, and I have, yeah, I have some uh, friends that are going to be doing guest sets and I think it'll be a fun maybe I should buy some no I'm not going to buy any outfits um, <laughs> I love how that's where your mind goes I know I yeah but I it's tough packing's tough like do I pack my spin shoes or do I rent them there it's like do I do because I don't want to check a bag on Thanksgiving I cannot check a bag on Thanksgiving yeah it's like so fucking tough so it's yeah. like you have to do Chicago weather San Fran weather show stuff lounge stuff workout stuff can you show them like your payment history and be like I have spent thousands of dollars on your classes. Can you just give me one pair of fucking free shoes for once? They would never. They would never <laughs> do that. They would absolutely never do that. Um, but uh, no, the class cost me $75. For the 90 minute? Yes. So as you're cycling, like every minute, it's just a dollar down. <laughs> like, well, yeah, because I go to because I go to the Soul Survivor as often as I can because I'm th- I feel like ten more minutes I'm getting my money's worth. Like it's not like I even want to work harder. I just I'm mm. like I have to fuck it. Yeah, I can't wait to go. Hand. I love Thanksgiving. My parents aren't vaxxed. It will be a nightmare. I don't know if they're gonna sit in a separate room or through the window. Like I don't know what they're up to. Yeah, you guys are gonna do it outside? It's cold there already. What are you gonna do? We did it last year outside. I don't think we're re- we're willing to deal with them. I think they'll be sitting in a separate room and have to wear masks. Like, I don't know what they're going to do. Can they just fucking get vaxxed? They're be- it's like at this point now, it's been seven months. No one's grown a third arm out of their head. Like, come on. Well, this is what I told them. I go, if you get vaxxed, I'll come home for New Year's. And they love me, but not enough. I guess not enough. Like you'd it's think just... seeing the, gr- even the grandkids are like, we miss coming over. Like we thought the grandkids wanting to go over for lunch would do something. And it's just not. It really makes no sense to me because I understand the fear. I get the fear. Your parents are scared. But now you've watched your whole family get it. Seven, eight months have gone by. What is the problem? We're all good. Nobody's like developed any problems from the vaccine. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, I don't know. I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. Also, I don't know why news. I'm acting like I'm talking to them directly. I'm looking at them, so I'll let you know. But I, I bought a, um, I bought clogs. I'm a, I'm where I'm a clog person now. Oh, I okay, clogs. I knew one of us was gonna bend on that, and it's you. I got. I've wanted clogs since fourth grade, and I finally have them. I had clogs in fourth grade. I guess everything's old is new again. Well, <laughs> I can't wait to see them. We should probably start the episode. We should. I feel really weird about this intro. I don't know how I, I feel. I feel pretty good about it. I think you're overthinking it. Um, we are thankful for all of you guys heading <laughs> yes. into Thanksgiving. We're thankful for all of our listeners, and we think we have a great episode coming up for you guys. This is a classic. You're going to love it. All right. Hello. Season six, episode four, Scavenger. I was watching this and I don't think I've ever seen it. I've never seen it because you kept talking about people from it. And I was like, all right, I'm sure Um, this was the first time I'd seen it. I've seen it so many times, but it was fun to rewatch it anyway. Yeah, it is a good one, and it's one of those uh, movie vibes that you enjoy. Yeah, You like when they step away and have to do some Silence of the Lambs bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) 
So woman's jogging. She's very athletic. And then there's a man, Bernie, and he's not as athletic running behind her being like, I need a break. I need a break. And she's like, think positive. And it's very annoying. It's like he is suffering. Um <laughs> But he's older. I don't understand their relationship. Is he paying her as a fitness instructor or what? Or are they Yeah, I don't love? know the relationship either, but you're right. That sounds like a trainer situation. Because I don't, I don't have any, like, I don't know. I don't think they're together, but unclear relationship. Um, but then we see a baby stroller. So this is exciting for Bernie. He's like, I don't have to run anymore. I could pay attention to the stroller. So there's a baby in the stroller, note taped to it. And then the muscly woman, she picks up the baby. And she's like, oh, whoa, did someone abandon him? And he goes, not according to this. Mom was abducted. So we cut to the detectives hitting the scene, doing some walk and talks. And the guy, he has such big sweat stains on his T-shirt. Like they really sprayed him down. <laughs> they fucking, that was a big wet circle. So shout out to wardrobe and props. So we have Mariska Maloney and Doyle right on the scene. No ID in the stroller. Um, there are drag marks. There must have been a car waiting. Are there footprints? Yes, they lead to a private area. Mariska goes, it's private and isolated. No view. This would be good. Um, you know, and Maloney asks a great question. He says, why abduct if you've already raped? Um, so if, you know, you want to do a journal today with that question and see where it takes you, you can. <laughs> <laughs> What are those called? Free write? Brainstorms? Whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> free write. <laughs> they find ripped underwear, uh, but it's not ripped. It's shredded. Is it a box cutter? Maybe. And then we get Tamara Tooney, a.k.a. Melinda Warner, and she's holding the baby and her hair is straightened half up, half down with a barrette. And the barrettes are back in style, which is exciting. Like 15 years ago, it'd be like, are you in a religious cult? Now it's like, okay, where'd you get that? So finally... It seems like everything happened very, very fast. So I couldn't even take a second to mention Benson's hair. But, um, and then I realized we're only a minute 43 in. So maybe like, but it, don't you feel it's jam packed? Yeah, this episode is packed. I was, I was typing so furiously. I'm like, I can't even look at her hair right now. <laughs> it, so much was going on. Um, so with her hair, it's short, but flowy hair phase. And I'm sorry to say this, no disrespect, of course, but it's brassy. Uh-oh. You, don't you think it's bra this is her brassy stage? Sure. You don't want to you don't want to get red. You're trying to win Miss Congeniality. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm I'm honestly trying to remember the hair. We watched so many freaking episodes of the show. I'm like trying to remember the hair. But I know no, that she goes through a brassy phase. My theory is like her girl had to call off last minute. And so they were like, do you want to see someone else at the salon? And she went, okay, fine. And then she was like, never again. So I think that's what happened at her in this moment. Um, but the baby's chill. Okay, so the baby's chill. And um, the, uh, we're going to take the baby to ER to make sure the baby is super chill. Um, um, he is hungry, though. Uh, there's duct tape on the scene. The, this guy's prepared. What we get from this is this is a very prepared criminal. Um, and there's a pre-printed note from the baby. And it's signed Rupert Daniel Kilmore. All right. And the poem is mean, mean man has a monster in his head. Find him by tomorrow or my mommy will be dead. So that's that. Finally, the credits. Whew. 
All right, back from the credits. We open on Cragen and he's like, is this vendetta against all mothers or just this one specifically? And um, does tomorrow mean midnight or tomorrow mean tomorrow? Like what's going on? You need to be more specific in your poetry, sir. Um, (laughs) So everyone's in on the case. So everyone's like in the precinct uh, talking about it. And they're like, should we check the gift registries for this high selling stroller? No. What? Everyone that ever put a stroller on a registry, that is a goose chase we don't need to go on. I don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand what they were. We're going to check every gift registry that sells the stroller. Dumb idea. No, it's wild. Like, I have a stroller that I see 10 times a day. Other women have it. Like, you would, that's like being like, let's track down everyone that's bought a Toyota Camry in the area. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So you have the Toyota Camry of strollers, you would say? Yeah. Well, no, I'd say. I have the um I'd say it's like an Audi. It's like a more affordable luxury vehicle. Okay. You have it's an not Audi the most stroller. expensive ones that they have, but it's a pretty good one. Okay, great. Um <laughs> good to know. So then the idea the next idea is let's like go on the news, say there's a baby been found, but no other details. And then they finally are like, oh, what about this name that signed the note? And it's like, why was that not the first idea? What does this <laughs> name mean? Um, so basically they find it and it's um, a place called Kilmore Time. I think that's a pun. It's in Staten Island. They get to Staten Island quick, uh, but it's some sort, it's like a clock store. Um, and there's a dork and he has like a thing on his head where he can zoom in on these watches and whatever. <laughs> um, he takes off the magnifying thing. It's very Belle's father in Beauty and the Beast. You know, <laughs> just like kind of a nut. Um, he takes this off and he kind uh, agree or disagree, did he not look like Trinity the Tuck Taylor? I mean, Trinity now, Trinity three faces <laughs> ago. What are we, what Trinity are we talking about? And I'd about? like to say it's like a... Um, it's a compliment to him and a read to Trinity. That's what I would say. <laughs> like, she looks better, but I thought it looked like Trinity the tuck Yeah, Trinity's straight brother who is a watch fixer. What do you call these people? Oh, hermot- hermotologist. He t- said it. <laughs> he said it, hermologist. He, um, he actually said, he's like, I'm just your local hermology, fourth generation. Um, so I hear the clicking. You're looking it up. But I think that's what he said. <laughs> is that not what it is? I'm looking it up. Yeah, look Watch it up. Repair people. Oh wait. Um. Oh, it's a horologist. Okay. Sure, but I was one letter off, and I, that means I'm correct. <laughs> so this isn't wheel. Much of like Barbara and Barbara, one letter off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and he's like, listen, you got the wrong guy. And then clearly, yes, uh, the phone rings and he says, you hear the horologist go, they're standing right there. What? So someone's watching. He knows the cops are there. Um, and then uh, he said like, oh my God, he said that I have to tell you all the facts. I don't know the facts. And he's getting stressed, but it's facts, not facts. And there's a fact. So Stabler gets testy. Um, he's like, that son of a bitch is watching us. Um, so that was fun. I like to swear and I like hearing bitch on NBC. So, (laughs) um, and then the the no, the facts said cops so dumb it took them a long time to get to clue number one I bet and mommy's running out of time and the clues written above something whatever Jiffy cop 
they go to the Jiffy Cop Center. I um, as the episode <laughs> as the episode goes on, I write less and less about these poems. It's like I, I don't have time for this. So um, they go to the Jiffy Copy Center and they run and they're like, "Who the fuck sent a fax from here?" And there's like a Jew frat looking young man and he's you know day job while he's going to Hudson and he's like a black skinny shaky man. So we find out it's an unhoused man and he's shaky because probably he loves drugs. And then there's a narc in the crowd, um, curly haired woman. And she's like, actually, I saw that kind of guy walking out as I walked in. He went that way. So go fuck yourself. Uh, but also there is a lot on the line. I, it's um, there's a lot of ethics at play. So they run to the alley. There's a guy tweaking. It's clearly not a criminal mastermind, but he does have the clues. And so they're trying to put some urgency in the game. But like he's having a good time because he's on drugs. So, because I bet the money he got for sending the fax for this guy got him the right amount of drugs. <laughs> so, whatever. Um, they keep calling him a dirt bag and he's like, you're ruining my high, bro. <laughs> like, he worked so <laughs> hard. Um, but they're shaking him around. They have to get info. Um, so, they find out that whoever made him send the fax put a knife to his back, made him do it, and he had to deliver the message. But the message is in the guy's head. And so, they start start digging in the trash and like what's going on and then they feed him a half chocolate bar that they find in the trash and force this garbage chocolate down his throat were you confused as i was or no were you- because they've done this before it's like when P- they th- he was passing out basically and they they were like he needs sugar to like keep himself like to wake back up so they were just i've seen it before it's like it's like when they're like get oj get somebody oj or get some you know like a candy bar because like I don't know. Drugs give you low blood sugar. I don't know. But like, that's what I've seen that before on the show. So I kind of knew what was going on. Yeah, I was like, lucky for you guys, you found a perfect half wrapped chocolate bar. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the clue is hog pat mend top yarn. And they don't believe him and they keep yelling at him and banging so he can't sleep. And it is that. Um, And (laughs) so they keep yelling at him and they won't let him sleep. So then our houseless uh, friend, he goes, oh, maybe it's a petting zoo. And Stabler says, shut up. And it's like, do you want this guy's help or not? You're not letting him sleep. You don't trust (laughs) him. He's trying to get involved and help find this woman. And you tell him to shut up. But I loved (laughs) that he got involved. Um, (laughs) And then a, a white outfit cop comes in and he has a manila envelope. And I, in my heart, before I even watched this a few times, but like, you know, something not good is in that envelope. Okay. Um, but we meet a guy named Eric at the same time. And he is sitting in a dimly lit hallway and Stabler goes to talk to him. And this is the husband of the baby daddy, whatever. That's the thing. He has a picture of Timmy, not Tommy, Timmy. You can't put this on your account. Um, and he, um, so he has a photo of his wife in the wallet, the baby in the wallet. He's a good guy. Um, and then he hears like the baby's around. He goes, oh God, thank goodness. And then they, he goes, uh, excuse me, what about my wife? What happened to Julie? What happened to her? He looks worried. Um, yeah, so not good. Now, so he is an amazing actor. He's the best stressed out, innocent husband the show has ever, ever had. Um, and the rest of the crew is standing over the desk. And then we hear Craig and be like, I need CSU now. And then they find out who Eric is and they try to like hide at the desk. And then what does he see? He sees his wife's earring that he gave her attached to her ear. And he's like, is that my wife's ear? And he's upset. 
Um, so that's course. what was in the manila envelope, which is very seven vibes. I feel like I was definitely getting a seven vibe oh, from yeah. this and it was creeping me. Yeah. A hundred percent seven. So the return address on the manila envelope is like hog pet something. And so the homeless man was correct. And then there's like a new letter with a poem. And I don't know. Things are not looking good for our girl, Julie. Okay. Um, Her ear is missing and who knows what else is going to happen. And then Munch starts doing anagrams very, very quickly on this clear dry erase board. But it's like, why were you not doing these before? I'm very confused why you just t- <laughs> like you knew there was a puzzle. Like I it's it really baffles me that they were just like bullying that guy instead of doing puzzles. But um basically it the puzzle spells out pay phone on Ma and Grand. So they rush out there. Um the dial tone, the phone's working, there's but they're searching, searching. They find an envelope on the top, and basically they're 45 minutes late. Um they are late to this call and fuck you. But they're going to have Taru trace it and see who called at 9.32 when they should have been there. So I don't know if this killer is giving them too high of standard, like if he's being insane or he's setting them up to fail or is it kind of doable or are they well, bad like at their job? if you wanted people to find it in any, like don't give the password to a person who's on drugs. You just don't know how you, that you can't account for how long it's going to take a drugged up person to give you a pass, a a, a clue. So he wants them to fail. It's not like they're terrible and they're 45 minutes late because they're so bad. He's making it hard. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just thinking about this in survivor terms. Um, (laughs) We're knocking down a door at this moment in time. Um, And they're, so Taru traced the call. This is where it came from. There's a congratulations sign, but there's a woman hanging in a bathrobe um, by her neck. So I don't know what the congratulations is for, but sorry, you are too late. And then it says consolation prize inside. So they open the bathrobe of this woman and Stabler's like, it's not her fault. We were late. We were late. And it's like, yeah, we know. What are you, what are you doing? You want someone Mm -hmm. to coddle you, say it's not your fault. It's your fucking fault. Um, No, it's, it's this killer's fault. So they open her up and on her stomach, it says RDK with an arrow to her back. And it said, and then it's like, wait, what does this mean? And it's RDK is back. So we can assume RDK is someone that is now back okay i said (laughs) we could assume that we could assume that for sure yeah (laughs) um i says he uh hey does she have any missing fingers because there are three fingers in the bedroom Uh, not her fingers so there's other loose fingers in this place not good okay so then there's poems there's so many fucking poems this guy's a true loser um, isn't it weird? Casey Musgraves is dating a poet and I heard not a good one. Sorry. Really? Yeah. I heard he, his poetry is embarrassing. I haven't read it though, <laughs> but you know, so there is like a fun little, okay. So in the, there is a poem and it's like for the next feather in my cap, what the fuck policeman's helmet, what helmet? No. Oh, I think it's a flower. No. Okay. RDK. I got ahead of myself, but RDK was a serial killer who terrorized Manhattan in the late seventies, early eighties. And Cragen's in his suspenders realness. He's on the board and he's collaging all the evidence and the victims in the pictures. And um, all but one of the six victims was raped, dismembered, and killed. Number six was Jeanette Headley, and she fought back and managed to escape. Um, She didn't see him because he was wearing a mask. 
And then um, he stopped killing until maybe now. Munch is like, how do we know it's not a copycat? And we find out RDK taunted police with letters and riddles, left distinct marks in public, a lot of signatures. It's the same signature. And I guess the first victim lost an ear and got hung. And so just like Julie, so it's a little nod to the older crimes. But I don't think it explains if it's the real guy or a copycat with any of this information. Um, oh no, there's another victim, single mother. Um, the ex had custody of the child, so we know that's good. But, um, where is this mom? So we have to find this mom to make sure she does not have limbs missing from her anytime soon. Were the fingers hers? We don't fucking know. This is a mess, but the kids with the, the partner. Okay. So the, she was a photographer. So they go through her photographer appointments to see like where she's been and they're trying to do that. And they're also trying to figure out that clue from earlier, you know, the policeman's helmet. What is that? What is that? And Munch realizes it's flowers. It's not a cap. There's a flower called policeman's helmet. So, uh, Finn goes, what are you babbling about? <laughs> I love that. I love that he got handed a script with maybe four highlights and one was, what are you babbling about? (laughs) Okay, so um, they find out that they should go to this flower mart and it's 4 a.m. right now. So they're going. They're not sleeping um, and they are going to find these flowers. And then we find the most offensive gay florist character (laughs) and he emerges as a gift from the SVU gods. (laughs) He's wearing pink and maroon and white striped button-down collared shirt, and he's busy. He's very, very busy. There's a lot of weddings happening. He can't talk. He has a wedding at three, and he needs to find the baby's breath. I mean, I love him. I also love baby's breath. Um, oh, that, yeah. I'd like to put some in my hair. Okay. And he's, like, annoyed. He has to pull this credit card receipt. He's like, ugh, you're so fucking annoyed. And it's like, bro, just, like, it is the cops. But I don't know. I like his passion for his artistry. Oh, God. So he finds the credit card receipts of, like, who bought, you know, policeman helmet flowers. And it's this person named Gloria. She purchased some of these flowers. Um, And so this guy, RDK, he used the victim's credit card, bold move, to get these flowers. But they have not been delivered yet. So the flowers are on the truck. So now they can go go deliver the flowers. Um, So Stabler and Benson, they go to deliver these flowers. But the address isn't real. It's just a vacant lot and Maloney goes no 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 no. it's a community garden and there's a broken lock um and then yeah unfortunately there is a woman underneath all the flowers and multiple stab wounds right by the book her name is Gloria and she is dead okay um there is a clue there's doodling on the bottom of her feet is it a roadmap maybe there's more back to the puzzle game um and she's holding today's newspaper with a clue and a signature is attached at the end so many facts i think i'm learning through this episode i would not be a good detective i would have given a i would have punched the floral guy before i even found gloria gloria would be rotting (laughs) in those flowers I have a note that says B3 exclamation point. I don't know what that means. Because that's the section of the newspaper that the guy is mentioned in. Okay, great. And he wants to be A1 above the fold. Okay. Did you take journalism in college? My dad taught me what above the fold meant when I was a ki- a teenager. I don't know. I just know what it means. Oh, but above the <laughs> but fold, I, like when I, you fold I, I the did paper. take journalism. Yes, yes. Oh, I love that. That's the hottest thing you want to be above the fold. So like if a newspaper is sitting on a rack, like you're you're the story. That's the story, you know? 
Um, but I did, I also did do student newspaper for all of high school. So yeah, you caught me. <laughs> you know, I'm about to use above the fold in my regular conversations <laughs> for years to come. That's, that's going into my vocab. Um, I took one journalism class in high school and all I remember is the inverted pyramid. And I'm always like, it's just the opposite these days. It's not an inverted pyramid of information. I don't even know what that is. It's like basically old timey news. It's like you start with the most important. This happened, this, 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 this. The title should give all this info. And then it goes down, down, down to the least important facts. But now, because everything's about clicking, they, they, they bury the leads. You're right. You know, you can't really online get an article that in the first paragraph will explain everything that happened. Yes, you have to scroll and scroll to get to like the quote that they've been promising you. So I always... That's so true. Yeah, I always bring up... I, I'm, that's like the old man in me. I'm always like, oh, it used to be the inverted pyramid. <laughs> Of information. <laughs> okay, so he wants to be above the fold, like we all do. Okay. <laughs> Just trying to use it as a vocab word. Okay. Um, we're at the ME's office. Can Melinda please give us some scoop? Okay, so she has a ponytail. Um, and she's saying none of these women were raped. So... I know he's already K, but maybe he's old and his dick doesn't work. I found no jizz anywhere. No jizz anywhere. <laughs> uh, Can you imagine if they got Melinda Warner going, sorry, guys, no jizz. Found, found zero jizz. It would be put on Pornhub immediately. <laughs> Melinda wouldn't be able to live it down. Um, but back in the day, he left jizz everywhere. And that's because there was no technology. I think about the Richard Ramirez doc all the time where he was just puking, eating fruits, like coming all over. And yeah, not, no he fear. was like leaving DNA in spades <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So old RDK coming all over town. This guy or is it is it an old dick that doesn't work or does the new RDK copycat dick doesn't work? But someone's dick is not working. <laughs> so. A victim from back in the day and Gloria both had 132 stab wounds. And that number was never released to the public. So it's like, how would the copycat even know if it's a copycat? Is this old man running around town? Uh, but Gloria didn't even die from the stab wounds. She died from a slit to the throat. So Melinda um, is like, this slit can't be a box cutter. It's something thinner than that. She's like, I think it's a scalpel. Like, that's my that's her that's her plan. And there's no other evidence. Maloney is annoyed as hell. And he goes, you know what? Let's go talk to the surviving victim. We'll go talk to Jeanette. So we're off to the apartment of Jeanette Henley. And she's living on 84th Street. And Jeanette's wearing a beautiful pastel striped down, like, collared shirt. Um, it's Easter colors, pink, yellow, lavender. But maybe I'm reading too much into this. But do you feel like her collared striped shirt and the florist's flowered, like, was that a plan? I doubt it, but I love where your mind goes with these things. <laughs> to have two collared, striped, uh, fun sh color shirts in one episode. I don't know. Um, but she has very, very short blonde hair, a pussycat wig, in the words of... <laughs> of absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, this would be a Monet exchange wig, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and she has a, an elegant scarf tied around her neck. Very scary stories to tell in the dark vibes. If you know, you know. <laughs> do you know, Kara? I do know. Okay. 
So she tells her story. He stuck a knife to her throat and drug her into an alley. He kept a knife at her throat the whole time he was raping her. And he whispered in her ear how she was going to die after he was done. Um, And then there was like gasoline in a soda bottle and he started to pour it on her and she grabbed the bottle and splashed some in his eyes and took off running. Um, But she couldn't scream because her fucking throat was slit and she reveals a scar. She found out it was RDK because she got a poem in the mail three days later with her compact and it was waiting for her when she got home from the hospital. Um, Ode to the one who went away was the poem. And he had all of her info. So she moved out that day and she's been in hiding ever since. Tough. Um, They let her know he's resurfaced. She's so upset. She's really shocked. She's a very compelling, great actress. Um, She's like, you found me and that reporter found me. And they're like, wait, what? Reporter? Excuse me. And she goes, yeah, there's someone writing an article for last month's 25th anniversary of the murders. And Benson goes, I didn't see that story. And Jeanette goes, hey, neither did I. Dun, 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 dun. But like, why are you reading every paper? I didn't see that story. But go, I mean, I love it, but go on. No, but I, I wonder if like, the, you know, they keep up with all the killer. Like, that's their thing. Like, we know who yeah. we know who gets like a half hour special and they just know what killers are getting attention in the papers. <laughs> oh, that's so true. Uh, Jeanette still has the business card of the reporter and he was very polite. And he told her that she reminded him of his mother, which I think is bad. If this is the killer, you don't want any, you don't want to remind these guys of their mother. (laughs) You will, you'll be in trouble. (laughs) Um, Benson's like, you got to go stay somewhere. She has a sister. So she's going to go stay with her sister in Queens, but also like, why aren't they offering protective detail, any security, anything for this woman? Like, they're usually very loose on giving protection, but not for this old ass woman. Like, that makes no sense. She needs help. So they ask her, did you show the reporter this poem? And if she did, maybe that could be how the, this journalist is this guilty person and could have gotten the signature. So that's another twist in the game that he got uh, this copycat could have gotten all this information from Jeanette. Um, The interview went down three days before his big comeback. This is hot on the news. Hot on the news. Okay. We're at the newspaper office. There's a wild white haired man and he's walking and talking and he's like, ah, your article sucked. You know, he's just a great boss. And um, he's saying he had no idea about this RDK um, article at all. Um, But that Blaine guy, maybe it's Blaine, and they look at Blaine and he does not like he doesn't match the description they have um, that Jeanette gave. And so they give the description to him. They're like, we're looking for a white pasty guy. And he goes, "Um, that's most of my employees. Um, So, uh oh, what do we do? But then one clue that puts it over the edge is the detectives mentioned that th- this person might have had black, thick framed glasses. And he goes, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like one of my researchers with the fakest sounding name in the show's history. Humphrey Becker. Humphrey Becker. That didn't upset you as a name. You thought uh-uh. nothing. No, I was pissed. Um, so he works in the files. So they go to the, they call it the morgue, but they go down to where all the files are. He's a researcher and they see an exacto knife there. And that's like a thing that cuts articles out of the newspaper. And they go, that's kind of like a scalpel. So then there's a woman down there. She's like, ugh, 
Humphrey's on vacation. He's probably sitting alone doing nothing. He's a dumb piece of shit. I fucking hate him. I hate working with him. He's actually an inspiration to never be like him, a reminder to never get stuck down here. He's miserable. He doesn't say a word to anyone. He creeps me out and he fucking stares at me. I bet he's sitting alone in his apartment playing with puzzles. We got the guy. Uh, 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 uh. We got the guy. Um, so we're back at the squad room and BD Wong is here. Thank goodness. And he's going to try to figure out like what's up with Munch and the drawings on the feed. And what does this all mean? So the puzzles mean that like he shifts the blame where it's not my fault. These people are dying. It's you. You're not getting these puzzles right. So he doesn't want to be guilty, but whatever. They put these puzzles together. They figure out we got to go to Lincoln Center. So all the manpower goes to look under all the seats and all over Lincoln Center to get the clues. So Benson and Stabler go get a search warrant. Um, and they get to his apartment. There's a lot of mystery books and humidifiers. And he collects nightlights. So he's scared of the dark and he takes care of his books with humidifiers. And then his wallpaper is rejection letters from his manuscripts. That's fucked. Yeah. Yeah. And the doors are off of all of the closets. And that kind of... Um, Peaks Stabler's suspicions. He's like, why are, what's going on here? Um, he has a book proposal about RDK and the rejection letter said that the, this company only wants books on current killers and killers that are famous right now, not old timey killers. So bingo, the return of RDK, that's a motive and whatever. Cragen calls him a crackpot. Love that. Back at the squad room, Cragen tells them to suck down coffee and do pushups. <laughs> okay. <laughs> out of context just do that yeah <laughs> to stay awake to stay awake you know they gotta <laughs> they got to solve the crime uh finn and munch come in from lincoln center and he hid the clue in the toilet so they looked at like every fucking seat and then they found them in the johns and so um they have to go to coney island there's a book there's a library there's a dust jacket i mean can the details relax i just can't keep <laughs> up there's so much um they find a clue that he won't take a victim till thursday um and it says like taking a show chorus girl something so they're like okay okay so they're trying to put all the clues together for like who's this next victim that this guy is going to take on thursday and so they're, while they're doing that munch is also reading about the original story from like the uh, like the original writer of all the rdk stuff from the examiner and so they go meet him to see like how you know how'd you get all like how do you get all this information and did you give it to humphrey what's going on and this guy they're at a private club it's like a friars club situation like leather seats uh judges i bet hang out there and you know he's retired he's rich he's doing good and he goes listen i'd get drunk with the detectives and they would give me all the scoop um the stab wound count i got from flirting with a young girl at the Emmy's office. And then we find out that this Humphrey guy is a member of this club. And Munch goes, wait, I thought only published authors get to hang out here. And he goes, yeah, he lied through his teeth to get in. He's so annoying. He's always pumping people for info and he is not liked here. And through this chat, uh, Munch finds out that there are lockers at the club. And so Casey Novak runs in, new world record and getting a warrant super, super fast. And she, <laughs> guess what? The million dollar question. But yes, she interrupted a judge's poker game. She's always interrupting a judge's poker game. I feel like that's Casey Novak's main thing. Yeah. It's <laughs> like... Always. And it reminds Sorry, me... Sorry, I know you've got a royal flush, Your Honor, but I need this warrant to yesterday. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me of uh, Rounders, which is one of my favorite movies. 
What do we find in the lockers? Journals. So they start snooping. And there's one um, that like writes out his whole plan to take over RDK's identity. <laughs> so they that's pretty good evidence. They find out that the third victim is going who, who the third victim is going to be and they have to go save her. So the cops run backstage and she's like in a My Fair Lady saloon girl outfit, you know, lace flowers, kind of sexy. And they're like, we're here to save your life. Gotta grab your son. You can't go on stage. You're in danger, danger, danger. Um, but also Benson gets a call. Jeanette never made it to her sister's house. Yeah. Why didn't you get her protective detail? You, uh, what the fuck? Or a ride at the very least, a ride to her sister's house. Fuck. Yeah. Oh my God. They really let Jeanette have it. Okay. So they go to Jeanette's apartment. It's a mess. Um, she calls for backup ASAP. Um, shit's flipped over. There's signs of a struggle. Is she going to find anything? And in the bed, in a red riding hood wolf situation, this guy's there. It's a worst nightmare. You, you know, it's, um, it's fucking Winifred Sanderson too. in Hocus Pocus, you look under the sheets and it is chilling yeah. nightmare. Uh Oh, it's a man with glasses. Gross. No. Um, he goes, congratulations. You caught me. Um, he goes, I just needed a place to crash since you guys were hounding my apartment and this place is vacant. He's wearing a tan bomber jacket and it looks thin. Okay. What? <sighs> Looks like a windbreaker material. So Benson is super serious, gun in the face. Where's Jeanette? Where's Jeanette? And he says, sorry, she's a little buried at the moment. So now we're in the squad room and Stabler does some real acting here. Okay. Um, he's so tired, but he, Cragen's like, we need you. Jeanette's buried alive. Let's go. Let's go. He wants man to man. He's waiting for you. Man to man. Um, and so they have proof he bought an oxygen tank. So we know that she's able to breathe for right now. Um, so that's kind of exciting. And everyone's giving him his info. It's like, uh, it's I don't know. It's really cool. It's really a team effort. Like everyone's throwing in facts and help before he gets into this room. It's it's an exciting shot. I wonder if it's a one take moment, but very choreographed, cool moment. So come on, Stabler, let's save the day. Um, so this motherfucker is pretending he's sleeping. I don't believe for a second he was actually sleeping. Do you? No. I agree with you. Um, so he does this dramatic waking up like, oh, what? I'm so evil. I'm unmoved. I could just sleep. I'm the worst. <laughs> um, and it's like, just be yourself, you fucking weirdo. Um, so yeah, he's trying very hard to do this like evil mastermind like act. And it's really. Ugh. And then he goes, hey, detective, is it true that only the guilty sleep? I guess you know what that means. <laughs> it's so <laughs> embarrassing. So then they talk about how tired everyone is. So Stabler says, you lost, bro. You're here. You're, you know, we got you. And he goes, oh, I haven't actually lost yet because you haven't found Jeanette. Tick tock, tick tock, motherfuckers. So then he has like a little tantrum. OK, he wants to make sure his boundaries and rules are met. Um, he starts waving at the mirror and he says, if anyone's walks in or out, it's over. Um, I'm the final clue. And um, do you like Stabler? Are you smart enough to even solve this puzzle? And I do believe that Stabler does believe he's smart enough to solve the puzzle. Right. Mm hmm. Stabler's going to yep. go. No, I'm an idiot. It's kind of this thing of like when people do too much talking, not enough proving. Like, stop talking about how good you are at something and just do it. Mm hmm. 
All right. So they're in there. There's a lot of back and forth rules, poems. He's like, no one better come in here or I'm ending this interview. My rules. I'm the last clue. You better fucking figure this out or Jeanette's going to die. And it's it's just like an annoying back and forth. And he's demanding things. Um, And he goes, listen, I know every trick in the book and you're not going to trick me. I know everything. And it's like you're about to be hoisted by your petard for sure. (laughs) <laughs> um so there's um like during the interrogation dance there's also hard ass raining outside it is which i love you know i love that love <laughs> do you think it was ra- real rain or effects or posts or like what it, it looked cool effects i think or i don't know maybe they can do that in post but i don't know this episode's from like earlier in the 2000s so maybe not i don't know i just don't think it's really raining that hard outside it's like fully hammering that rain yeah you hear the rain and if you're an asmr freak like the rain or you just like the sound of rain it felt it was really good um and he shades him a little about his rejection letters and he's like maybe i'll just take another nap and it's like you're so sensitive so Mm -hmm. maloney gets a call and he goes hey baby i'm kind of working right now and he's like oh i'm talking to my wife he's not he's talking to bd wong okay and bd has some insight he goes don't fucking belittle him and make fun of him like he's been a loser his whole life you got to give him his 15 minutes to shine build him up don't bring up these rejection letters and how he sucks at writing tell him how you you fucking love him so now glasses is like offended by the phone ringing i don't get this connection and then i'm thinking maybe back in the day phones meant something different this is an earlier season i think he's just like i'm the star of this show you need to be paying a hundred percent attention to me and like don't take a fucking call from your wife while you're talking to like one of the greatest serial killers of all time okay in his mind that's who he is yeah because he's like what am i boring you and it's like this has nothing to do with you Even though it does. Okay. So, you know, he's like, turn off the phone. Stabler is not going to turn off the phone. That's like his lifeline to uh, all the good advice. You know, it's about teamwork. Um, And Stabler's like, listen, your plan is really clever. And he goes, "Uh, excuse me, it's brilliant. Um, Stabler goats him by being like, um, you know, with the son of Sam laws, though, you can't make money off your crimes. So like all of this in your books and anything that comes out, like you're not going to make any money about it. And he's like, it's not about money. I'm about to be famous. I'm going to be a legend and that's going to show her. And, and Stabler goes, wait, who? Her? And he goes, no, them. I meant, I meant them, small-minded publishers. And Stabler's not going to let this go. And it's like, we all heard you. You said her. And then he goes, you know what? I'm done talking to you. And I guess, uh, you know, you'll have to just buy the book. Stabler says, you are supposed to do the chorus girl. Why do Jeanette? And he's like, well, you know, you guys made me jump ahead because you were catching on and you figured out who I was. So I had to like, you know, figure the whole shit out. He has a pocket watch. That's another thing I don't like. Do you have you met one person with a pocket watch you enjoy? <laughs> I can't say I have. No. <laughs> Stabler's phone rings again, and this guy is obviously pissed about that. But um, okay. He's still going to answer it. And Benson goes, hey, we have news from Novak. If he gives the location, they'll take the death penalty off the table. And glasses, it goes one more time. It rings and we're done. Um, And it's like, okay. So the rain's going really, really hard. um, And Stabler slaps him. Did you see that coming? I didn't. Um, And he starts choking him on the fenced window. He's done playing mind games, chokehold style, showing him like, oh, you like not breathing? You're going to tell me where Jeanette is, you freak. Um, Cragen and Huang run in. And, um, you know, Glasses acts like a tough shot now that there's other people in the room. (laughs) I love that you're just calling him Glasses. 
Because I hate the name Humphrey. <laughs> it's not a real name. We have a friend named Humphrey. No, you don't. I'm not my friend. Jared and I do. Yeah. Make that very <laughs> clear. I have nothing to do with this guy. Um, so he's British, if that makes it any different. It's so his name's Humph. So technically his name's Humphrey, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, listen, so after us acting like, a, I would say this man is acting is very, very good. Cause he's driving me up a wall. Okay. Um, yeah. and then BD is like checking his pulse and asks and like ask, asking questions and the glasses guy is like, okay. I get what you're doing. You're pretending that you're this doctor helping me. Fuck you. You're checking my pulse. I'm like a human lie detector. You're interrogating me. And he goes, I'm not a detective. I'm a doctor. And I'm with the FBI. And obviously he loves this. He's like, oh, well, 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 well. They brought in the big guns for me. Um, So (laughs) he knew BD Wong is a genius. Huang, you got it. Yeah. So, I mean, I only had just a call from the FBI and I loved it. So he's, yeah. So he's like, oh, you're here to profile me. And Wong's like, yeah, we have the whole team here. And he goes, well, what are they saying about me? Um, Okay. So then he goes, well, what are they all saying about me? And without missing a beat, Wong goes, that you're impotent, which (laughs) is so good. (laughs) I didn't expect that. Like I, you know, I thought there would be more of a long game. This is classic negging. He's classically negging him. He's like, all the other guys say that you're impotent, but I said that you're awesome. Like, I think that you're great. Like, that's what negging is. Oh, I didn't know that. Good negging know. is like a, when a guy goes, you know, all the other guys say that the hottest girl is Sarah, but I think it's you. You know, that's like, wow, all the other guys don't think I'm hot, but you do. Okay, so like put someone down and then gives them like a tiny bit of buildup, you know? Interesting. Okay. Um, and oh yeah, you're right. So then Huang's like, but I told them it wasn't true. I got your back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but he's like, well, why would they say that? And basically it's like facts are facts, bro. You copied RDK in every way except the rape. Like you didn't rape. And um and he goes, you have no idea what I did to those women. And BD at, looks extra hot in this scene. I don't know if you were like, wait, what? Is it the like very sexy? Like he looks really, really hot here. So B, so Huang's like, I know you didn't rape them because that would be like fucking your mother. And Humphrey does not like that. And he gets upset and is like, what the fuck? And Huang's like, well, you attacked mothers and mothers of little baby boys and you let the boys live because they're innocent and you hate women. So what the fuck did your mother do to you? And in comes Mrs. Becker. It's Steve Brady's mother from Sex in the City, mother of Ben Stiller and Mira. She has 90 credits, one of which is another SVU episode. She was in Dreams Deferred with uh, Patricia Arquette. So if you want more of her in SVU, you got it, baby. She's wearing, I've met her before, and she's a legend. Um, in the elevator, NBC, Paige, Conan, where No, I worked on this thing. My uncle like wrote this book um, about George Carlin, and then Ben Stiller came to speak at this thing that they did at the New York Public Library about the book. And then Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, they were, a, they were a duo forever, like a comedy duo, Stiller and Mira. And they both came to this thing, and I met them both. I mean, she was already quite old, but it was like thrilling. And I know Amy Stiller, Ben's sister, is a friend of mine. Uh, yeah, and she's like really good in terms of playing like annoying but aloof 
You know, because even as Mrs. Brady, it's like she's just kind of drunk and rude, but she doesn't mean it. I don't know. I she's, she's really very good talented. in that role. It's very heartbreaking that role. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in this um, scene, she's wearing a yellow raincoat and a little rain hat, which I don't understand why they aren't more popular. They seem like a great idea. Why aren't <laughs> people? Wear- yeah, like protect your hair a little better. Um, she says that she named him after Humphrey Bogart, and she loves Humphrey Bogart. Um, but she hasn't seen her son in 25 years because of the scandal. And she's like, I worked so many jobs to get him through journalism school, and he plagiarized his honors thesis and got thrown out and disgraced. Wow. Why would you do that? Yeah, you can't plagiarize your thesis. Like, you just can't. So the mom is like, what happened to you? And he calls her Ida. So that's not a good sign. And he says she hasn't changed a bit. She's like, you look the fucking same. Um, there's a lot of Humphrey Bogart talk between mother and son. And she's uh, she's like, do you know how embarrassing this is for me? And he responds, I'm doing this for you. He's like, I'm famous now. You've wanted me to be famous. So I will. Are you happy now? And she says, you are nothing but trouble and a difficult child. She said she couldn't take him any. She couldn't go to the movies because when the lights went out, he'd throw a tantrum and he was a crybaby and scared of the dark. And then they would ask her to leave. And it's like, that's actually not that big of a deal. Like, we're suddenly on the (laughs) side of the killer where it's like, yeah, kids can sometimes be scared of the dark. And why are you taking them to Humphrey Bogart movies? What? (laughs) But she still went to the movies. So she would leave him alone and would lock him in the closet so he wouldn't, you know do anything bad but he would get so worked up and scared in there and then he kept pissing himself and it's like wait how are you telling this story like you're the hero of it like she (laughs) does not see anything wrong with locking her kid in a closet while he pees himself terrified so she could go to the movies not a good mom so they're like oh, that's why you take the closet doors off. And he's like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. And he's like, I'll kill you, you bitch. And starts like lunging. And she's like, this is how you treat your mother. And they're locking him in a closet. This will not stand in court, but they have to save Jeanette. Um, Casey's not there to stop it. He's losing his mind in the closet. And they're like, you don't get to come out of the closet until you tell us where the fuck Jeanette is. So we find out Jeanette is in a dump in Staten Island in a fridge with a chain around it creative guy um so the biggest suspension of disbelief is that they got to staten island quickly enough to save this woman i I, okay but or that there's one dump in staten island just one dump like (laughs) just heading to the dump in staten island okay uh she's barely breathing and it looks like she's really struggling but they get her on a stretcher they give her some oxygen and she's like this will never be over and they're like don't worry it'll be over and she goes no Okay, so Stabler has sweat on his shirt in this scene, too. So they were really heavy with, like, sweat T-shirt stains in this episode, in the top and the bottom of the episode, wet wet shirts. So Jeanette is saved, and then, you know, Humphrey's in a closet, and I wonder when Cragen will let him out. So that's how we end this episode. It's a good one. It's very, yeah, it's very seven with the riddles and along came a spider and all these kind of like, you got to figure stuff out to get, you know, to the killer. Um, But as usual, (laughs) they blame it on their moms. I mean, she was a fucked up mom in this case, though. Uh, 
And the real case is super, super fucked up. So get ready for that. Listen, we're all SVU fans. We love a family drama. We love a mystery to solve. And you got to get hooked into a story with the details. You need the visuals. You need the storylines with the twists and the turns. And that is what June's Journey has and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young girl on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murderer. Dun, 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 dun. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. The game is filled with all these beautiful detailed scenes from the 20s, like lavish estates and gardens. And of course, little hidden clues are everywhere. There's twists, turns, catchy tunes. It all takes you deep deeper into this storyline. And if you play well enough, you can make it into the detective club. And there you can chat with other players and even compete with or against them, which is pretty exciting. And you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed. And can you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. Okay, love that. And guess what? It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, let's get into this. If you have not put it together already, this episode is based on the BTK killer, RDK, BTK. Uh, BTK was a very well-known serial killer who killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991 in Kansas. Uh, BTK gave himself that name, and it stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. And much like the Zodiac killer, he would mail letters to police and newspapers detailing his crimes. And then what's interesting about this is in 1991, he went totally silent. He stopped. There was no more killings attributed to him. And he was totally underground for like 13 years until 2004 when he started sending letters again, which actually led to his apprehension and arrest. And in 2005, he was identified as Dennis Rader. So, to take it back, Raider grew up in Wichita, Kansas. I have never been to Kansas. I don't know if you have, Lisa. Any experiences in Kansas? Uh, Yeah, I performed, but it was Kansas City, I think. So, yeah, that's like on the border of Missouri. I have been to Kansas uh, at Sanford and Sons. I featured for Nikki Glaser on New Year's. Like, (laughs) eight, seven years. I don't know. I don't know. Time is weird, but. Yeah. A while ago. Um, so he grew up in Wichita. Oh, and I, with- I've been to Tulsa, Oklahoma as well. Oh, that's Oklahoma. That's not Kansas. Never mind. <laughs> Keep that in. <laughs> um, okay. So he grew up in Wichita with three brothers, parents who worked a lot, didn't pay a lot of attention to them. And as a young child, he already was fantasizing about torturing women. He tortured and killed small animals. He had all the makings from that serial killer. Like there was a book about how to, he's already on chapter one, like from jump. Okay. He's killing animals. He has sexual fetishes uh, that involve voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, cross-dressing. Um, they show a lot of this in the show Mindhunter. Um, if you watched Mindhunter uh, season two, I believe, I don't think it was in season one, season two, 
they keep showing a guy doing weird stuff. Like they keep going to these interstitial like cuts that don't really have to do with the main action. And that I believe was to introduce a BTK storyline probably for season three, but we don't know because season three like hasn't come out yet. So um, he kept all of these proclivities hidden and was considered a totally normal dude in his community. I mean, if you look at pictures of him, he kind of looks like the dad from that 70s show. He has like light bulb head and bozo haircut and mustache. Like he just kind of looks like a dad who'd be like, get off my lawn or whatever. Um, in May of 1971, he married his wife, Paula Dietz. He was 26. She was 23. And they later had two kids named Carrie and Brian. Um, he was a member of the Christ Lutheran Church and was president of the church council and a Cub Scout leader. Ugh. So in 1974, he's 28. Um, and he's married. They don't have kids yet. He's a married Air Force veteran. And this is when he begins killing. And his MOs are kind of all over the place. Like he mostly strangled victims, um, but he would do his hands. He would use rope. He would use pantyhose. But then he also has shot victims and stabbed them as well. So it's not like one of the serial killers that you hear about that kind of uses the same methodology every single time. So this is so fucking sad. His first victims were, were the Otero family. Uh, Joseph Otero, 38. Julie Otero, 33. Uh, Joseph Otero Jr., who was nine. And Josephine Otero, who was 11. Julie Otero, the mom, was a former co-worker of Raiders at the Coleman Equipment Company. But federal agents later said that he targeted the family because he was attracted to Josephine, the 11-year-old. And he cut their phone line to their house, entered their home, strangled the two parents, and killed the two children. Um, and the bodies were discovered by the family's three older children who had been at school at the time of the killing. So this is, like, so horrific. There's, like, details to the killing that are online that I don't even want to mention because they're just so horrific. So we can just read about it or something. Or we're going to give you more resources later. Okay. Three months after the murder of the Otero family, it's April of 1974, and Catherine Bright, another Coleman employee, is stabbed to death by Raider in her home. She was with her brother at the time, who uh, BTK shot, but he actually survived and escaped the home, the brother. And then October of that same year, after somebody falsely confessed to killing the Oteros, Raider calls the editor of the Wichita Eagle, which is a newspaper, and tells them to check out an engineering book from the Wichita Library. In this book... There's a letter that he's written that says, those three, I'm going to read it the way it's written. It's got a lot of typos. Those three dude you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. BTK. You see, he added again, they will be on the next victim. So he basically gives himself the name. Like he, this, you can tell already that he's obsessed with getting credit for the murders and becoming famous. The letter also included a bunch of details about the Otero murders that had never been released. And one article I read said it was signed with the killer's distinct sexually suggestive signature. And I was like, what's a sexually suggestive signature? So I did Google it and it is wild because it is BTK set up to look like a woman's body and the B is turned into boobs. So definitely like a child teenager made up this signature and he was like, cool, I'm going to 
sign all my letters with this. So after, in this one year, he kills uh, the Oteros and Catherine Bright, and then two more than two years go by until his next killing. March of 1977, he murders a mother of three. Her name is Shirley Vianne Relford, and her five-year-old child opened the front door. That's how he got into the house. Like, her kid just opened the door and was like, hello. And then he locked the kid and the two siblings in the bathroom and strangled Shirley to death. And I later read that he had wanted to kill her children, but he um, he got, he said he had to stop. Like he got interrupted or something, or he felt maybe like someone was coming or he had to get out of there. So the children luckily were able to escape and they did give the police a description of the intruder. Nine months later, he binds and strangles Nancy Fox, who's 25, and then heads to a payphone to report the crime. So they do get his voice on tape. A few months later, February of 1978, the TV station KAKE in Wichita receives a letter that takes credit for all the murders and says, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper and some national attention? So very much like, when do I get to be above the fold? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So he, in this letter, in this um, letter to the station, suggests a bunch of nicknames for himself, such as BTK Strangler, Wichita Hangman, and the Asphyxiator. So he's like spitballing ideas here. Like, yeah, guys, like, what do we think my name should be? Uh, BTK, Wichita Hangman. Like, he's literally obsessed with this fame. So then there's a woman in 1979 named Anna Williams who was 63 and actually narrowly missed being BTK's next victim. He apparently waited in her house like for a while for her and she took so long to get there that he bounced. And then two months later, he sent her a bunch of things that he had stolen from her house with a poem that said, oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? So a little bit like a parallel to the uh, ode to the one who got away from the episode. Uh, Raider later confessed that he became obsessed with Williams and was absolutely livid when she evaded him. So sketchy, scary man. Um, in August of 1979, they released his 911 call where he reported the death of Nancy Fox and tons and tons of tips came in of people thinking that they could identify the voice, but nothing panned out. Five years go by, no bodies. Um, and for some, and now it's 1984 and the police chief in Wichita establishes a task force devoted to BTK. But it's like, why did it take five years? I don't really understand why that, but you know, we know about cops and they were nicknamed the Ghostbusters. It's like, cool. It's been five years. Uh, the following year, 1985, 53-year-old Maureen Hedge, who was a neighbor of Raiders, lived six doors down from him, is found... She's found on May 5th, and she, but she was killed on April 27th. So Raider had strangled her and took her body to his church to, quote, have his way with her. He photographed her body in bondage positions, and he had previously stored, like, black plastic sheets and other materials at the church in preparation for the murder, and then later dumped the body in a remote ditch. And he called this plan Project Cookie. Ugh. Um... He later told um, a sergeant named Tom Lee, he said, he stated to me that if he could really pull it off right by his house, it would really be a biggie. He told me it was really hard for a guy to knock one of the neighbors off. It's not good for a serial killer because you don't want to kill in your own habitat. This is like basically what he told the sergeant, which is so fucked. Like he was challenging himself to do somebody close to home. So... He later told investigators that he would squeeze an exercise ball to build up his hand strength in, pre- in preparation for these stranglings and that he typically masturbated after the killings and he took underwear from the female victims and wore them. 
I have you ever I've done those. The hand ball, the my, balls? Not the balls, but what are those that like they're um, metal holdy things and you squeeze oh, yeah. them together? Like they're like mini thigh masters. Yeah, but why? Why did my dad did it all the time and now I'm like, is he a murderer? <laughs> <laughs> because then I would do it and they're hard, but it's like, why do you need, f- I guess there's got to be it, it strengthens your whole forearm? I don't really know. I don't know. Maybe your dad was trying to get a jacked forearm. I really don't know, but... Um, <laughs> So in 1988, Vicky Wegerle, I'm sorry if I'm saying her name wrong. Uh, Vicky Wegerle's husband comes home to find his two-year-old sitting alone and his wife murdered. So sad. I mean, at least he didn't kill the two-year-old, but just so traumatic. It's very Dexter. That's like how Dexter uh, comes to be. Um, initially, this murder was not tied to BTK and the husband was accused. And then in 1991, his final victim, he threw he throws a cinder block through a sliding door at the home of a retiree named Dolores Davis and strangles her to death and leaves her body by a bridge. And it was two weeks from when he killed her to when she was found. After this, so in- my question, I have a question, is um, without his games, would they have connected all of these? Because, like you said, they're all so different. And without DNA evidence, like, would they have been able to tie these together? That's a great question, and probably not. He took credit for every single one. And after he was caught, they actually tried to check, like, neighboring states, neighboring cities, like, see if there were other cases that could be attributed to him. And they basically came to the conclusion that any murder he did, he would have taken credit for. That was just his, his his psychology. Like, he wanted everyone to know exactly who he killed and... You can see video of him like allocuting in court and he's literally like, yeah, so then I murdered her this way. Like he's so matter of fact about it and like just talks about he like doesn't have remorse. It's very scary. Um, And then wildly in 1991, after he kills Dolores, he's gone. Like he goes underground and that's it. Like 13 years go by and BTK is considered a cold case. Is there a theory what happened in those? Yes. The theory is that he got busy with his wife and kids. He had two kids. He had, his kids were getting older. He was spending more time with his kids, his church, like whatever. And he just stopped doing it. Because these don't, I mean, obviously he took time to prep, but these murders are so chaotic. Like, I wonder how much prep really did go into them. They said he did that he stalked other victims and then he would have to um, move on from them because like if somebody that he was stalking like lived near a construction site or like where people would be coming and going too much, he would he would call it off. But he would do like a lot of work of stalking them first. So I think that the actual murders themselves like seem chaotic, but. They they remind me of the Golden State Killer a little bit too, who would just like kind of be in someone's house or break into someone's house in the night, like and yeah, I don't know. He just uh, just was not getting caught for a long time, and maybe that's why he changed up his mo. Like sometimes strangling them, sometimes stabbing, sometimes whatever. I actually read somewhere that the reason that Catherine Bright was stabbed is because she fought like hell. Like she really, really fought. And he's like, I have to quote unquote, put her down. So he just stabbed her instead of like, cause strangling her was, she was fighting it off too hard, I guess. So super fucked up. So 13 years go by, it's a cold case. And then in January of 2004, and I know you're going to like make fun of me, but I remember this. Like I remember reading this in the free paper about BTK, like resurfacing in 2004, Um, Because I was like living in New York City and I was like, everybody was trying to find this guy. So in 
the Wichita Eagle, that same newspaper, they run a 30th anniversary piece on BTK. And th- this is three decades after he, the uh, Oteros were first killed. And the article is basically talking about BTK and suggesting basically that he was a has-been. Being like, well, that guy's gone. Like so many years later, we never found anything out. No one cares Why about him anymore. Why would they do that? To draw him out again, maybe. So more people could die? That's crazy. Well, it did work. And did more people die? No. Okay. All right, then. But just barely. The way things work out, just hold on. The way things work out, you're right. You're, you are right. Like, that was a really big risk. Maybe they didn't do it to draw him out. They just did it about, like, well, it's been three decades and no one found that guy anyway. And, like, I think he maybe got the whole, like, rush of, like, I want my name in the paper again. I want to be get this attention. So he admitted that this article spurred him to revive his deadly alter ego. And um, another question. Do people consider him, like, a pedophile, too? Or that's not really talked about as much. Here's the thing. He, he talked about how he was attracted to Josephine Otero, but he never sexually assaulted any of his victims. It just, the murdering itself was what sexually aroused him. Got it. But it, they talked about how he called her a young woman. It's like, bro, she's 11 years old. She's not a woman. So, like, I, I, he was obviously very fucked up about uh, women in general and, and girls. But, I, yeah, I don't know if they brand him a pedophile because he didn't actually touch anyone. But um, March of 2004... The Wichita Eagle receives a letter from Bill Thomas Kilman. Very, very reminiscent of the episode. He claims that he murdered Vicki Weggerly and included photographs of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which had been stolen from the crime scene. So DNA collected from under her fingernails had given police previously unknown evidence, and they began testing the DNA of hundreds of men to try to find this guy. And then later, 1,300 DNA samples of these men were destroyed by a court order, which I thought was really interesting. Like, they had promised these guys, like, if you're not the serial killer, we'll destroy your DNA. So they did. Um, And then May of 2004, a couple months later, KAKE, the TV station in Wichita, received a letter with the chapter headings for the BTK story. Um, and a word puzzle. So this is like where I think SVU got a lot of the um, inspiration was like this guy would do some puzzle stuff. On June 9th, a package was found on the corner of First and Kansas Roads in Wichita that had graphic descriptions of the Otero murders and a sketch labeled, The Sexual Thrill is My Bill. I don't know what's going on there. Um, Raider... So this is what you were talking about, Lisa. Raider later admitted that he had planned to start killing again and that he had set a date for October of 2004 and he had begun stalking a victim. But in October of 2004, a manila envelope was dropped into a UPS box in Wichita and it had images of terror and bondage of children and a poem threatening the life of the lead investigator, Ken Landauer, who was one of the Ghostbusters. And it had this, what I read is a false autobiography with a bunch of details about Raider's life. So he said he was going to start uh, Yeah, but o- is that because the March article came out or do you think he really was going to come back out in October? He seems... Who knows? So Who annoying. Knows? It's like, okay, if you're a fucking psychopath killer and you're evil, okay. But now you're also annoying. 
an annoying yeah. poet, like an attention. Well, you're an hungry. annoying poet who just wants to be famous. Like that's so so sad it's, and fucked. It's like tough. I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So then in 2000, in December of that year, the Wichita police get another package from BTK that was found in a, in a park and it had the driver's license of Nancy Fox, which was also stolen at the scene. And it also had a doll that had its hands and feet bound and a plastic bag over its head. So he thinks this is like funny. He's like fucking with people. Um, so not only is he a serial killer, he's a troll. And in January of 2005, he... So this is the thing he did. He left a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita, okay? The the driver of the truck was like, what the fuck is this cereal box doing in my car? And just tossed it in the trash. Um, we later find out that cereal box is tied to serial killer. Like, that's basically why he left it as cereal box. He's trying to be clever. So the following month, the TV station gets more... Uh, postcards and another cereal box is found with another bound doll. And he asks in his messages, did you guys get the cereal box from Home Depot? And they didn't, they hadn't gotten it. So they went and looked for it. They found it on surveillance footage. They went through the trash and they found it. And it, um, on the surveillance video, they saw that whoever dropped it off in the, it was like very distant uh, footage, but they saw the guy was driving a Jeep Cherokee. So that's going to come into play later. And cool in that car. Home Depot box, Hmm. Yeah. Cool car. Cool car. Yeah. Actually, when I was in high school, very, very cool car. Um, so they go through the trash. They find this one at the Home Depot. And in it is a message that he asks them and says, guys, be honest. If I send you a floppy disk, will you be able to trace it? And if the answer is no, put an ad in the paper that says, Rex, it will be okay. So literally... The police ran that ad in the Wichita Eagle that says, Rex, it will be okay, telling him, no, no, there's no way we can track your floppy disk. Pretty smart. So on February 16th, Raider sends a purple 1.44 megabyte Memorex floppy disk, if we all remember a good floppy disk, to the Fox affiliate KSAS-TV in Wichita. And there is also in it a letter, a gold-colored necklace, and a photocopy of the Rules of Prey, a photocopy of the cover of this book called Rules of Prey, which is a 1989 novel about a serial killer. On the disc, police find metadata in a deleted Microsoft Word document, and the metadata has the words Christ Lutheran Church, which is the name of his church, and the document was last modified by Dennis. So pretty simple to connect it with a simple Google search that Dennis Rader was the president of the church council. Then they drive by his house and they see that he has a black Jeep Cherokee. Same as on that Home Depot surveillance footage. So they are like, okay, we've got a lot of good circumstantial evidence with Rader, but we don't have enough quite to bring him in. So this is wild and I don't even know how it's legal, but the police obtained a warrant to test a pap smear from Raider's daughter that she had gotten at Kansas State University's medical clinic. The DNA test showed a familial match between the pap smear and the sample that they got from Weggerly's fingernails. So they had the DNA from that one victim and that indicated that the killer was very closely related to Dennis Rader's daughter. This is shocking. And, this is shocking yeah. that it was easier to test a pap smear of a young woman over tr getting a, what is it? A court order to test his shit. 
Maybe they didn't have enough. I don't know. I don't know how you get a, I don't know how, and, and is it because it's a state university medical clinic that you're allowed to even have access? Like if it was a private doctor, they wouldn't be able to give up your, your pap smear without a warrant. Like, I don't understand it at all, but I'm sure we have some like lawyer folks that are going to write to us and tell us what's up. But um, that was definitely enough to get him uh, and arrest him. So they arrested him on February 25th of 2005. Um, which is literally nine days after he sent this disc in. So why would Bro he was trust? So, like, why he would he so trust He was so desperate, them? just so desperate for fame that he was just like, all right, I'm going to send you guys this disc with like, I don't know why he didn't just keep sending in letters. But I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It's wild. But the officer that arrested him said, Mr. Raider, do you know why you're going downtown? And he said, oh, I have suspicions why. So... In 2005, he's charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. His bail is set at $10 million. He gets a public defender. Um, In June 2005, he gets a scheduled trial date, um, and a judge had previously entered his plea as not guilty, and he changed his plea to guilty. He describes the murders in detail and makes no apologies. In July of 2005, the next month, his wife is granted an emergency divorce, um, and at his August 18th sentencing, victims' families made statements, and then he does kind of apologize in a 30-minute monologue that apparently one of the prosecutors called, like, it was an Academy Award acceptance speech. No, but um, this wife thing, like, that's the scariest. Like, that really keeps me up at night. Like, you think you're married to someone, and then they are a m- murderer. By all accounts, he was, like, a nice guy, Cub Scout leader, worked at the church, like, volunteer church council. Like, uh, you know, no reports that he ever abused the children or the wife, you know. But it's like I do a joke in my stand-up about how Ted Bundy had a girlfriend the entire time who he never harmed in any way. It's like these guys, I think they they use that as covers. We've talked about that before with, like, the butcher baker of Alaska. Like, no one suspects the guy with the wife and two kids, you know. But... It is a lot of times the guy with a wife and two kids. So what I, I read one thing that was interesting that said that his long rambling apology speech was kind of a, a consistent factor with other psychopaths, that they, they have an inability to understand the emotional content of language, which I, I thought that was interesting. I never read that before. Do you know what that um, means? I don't know what that means. I think it's like that they just, he just like, they just talk and talk and talk and don't really understand like the, I don't know, like the emotional impact of their words mm. like I think he literally was just talking about how he killed all these people and like didn't didn't care that behind him are families crying at everything that he was is talking about mm. you know yeah um like the families are all there weeping about their their dead loved ones so he does get 10 consecutive life sentences a minimum of 175 years Kansas had no death penalty at the time of the murders, but it did get the death penalty in the mid-90s. So they did try to, like I said before, connect other cases to him, but it really does seem like he didn't do any murders after 1991. So he was basically in just remanded to jail forever. And he was put in solitary confinement for his own protection with one hour of exercise a day, three showers a week. And then in 2006, he was allowed access to TV and radio and to read magazines because he was being given privileges for good behavior. So after he is sentenced, he's obviously so obsessed with fame that he did speak to a lot of investigators and authors, and he was very candid about what he did. Um, he told cops that he had, quote-unquote, afterlife plans for his female victims. Like, one was going to be his mistress, and another would be his bondage servant. Like, 
very warped. Um, he revealed that some, this is so fucked. He revealed that some of the victims would regain consciousness after being choked and he would whisper in their ears that he was BTK. Like he just, it was so important for him to like let his victims know that they were being killed by BTK because I think it added to his whole fame narrative. And even after detailing all of these killings to investigators, he would be like, uh, he would basically be like, I know I can be mean, but like on the other hand, I'm a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. Like he was very, like a lot of, serial killers compartmentalize, you know, we talk, they talk about this a little bit later, but, um, and, and then I read other times he would say, I'm sorry, I know this was a person, but I'm a monster. Like he would be describing the case and be like, you know, happily describing it and be like, sorry, I'm a monster. And, uh, they had, they did have a, the, his public defenders hired a psychologist to evaluate him named Robert Mendoza uh, he diagnosed Raider with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders. That's not really shocking. I think a lot of them have that. He said that Raider had a grandiose sense of self, a belief that he is quote unquote special and entitled to special treatment, and a pathological need for attention and admiration. Uh, he has a preoccupation with maintaining rigid order and structure and a complete lack of empathy for his victims. And I just think it's so weird how mostly men have this. Um, women don't catch this uh, most of the time. There is a woman named Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who was a forensic psychologist and an author of a book called Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. And she got tons and tons of FaceTime with him and, and corresponding with him while he was in jail. And she actually has an episode where she's on Wicked Words, one of our sister podcasts on Exactly Right. So please go check that out. Very well-researched, well-done podcast. Um, he, um, I'm sorry, she, Catherine Ramsland one time asked BTK um, like to describe what it was like, what he felt like when he was killing someone. And she received a 14-page later letter with a packet thick with newspaper clippings, photographs, recipes, all marked with individual letters. And it was accompanied by a key to help decipher the clues. Like it was a full puzzle, just like the guy in the episode. And it's like, you're already in jail. Like, why are you making people do puzzles? Like... She says, um, this collection of writings and clippings offered a glimpse into Raider's mind. It was his way of retaining control, playing word games with curious guards and feeling as if he were still important enough to hide his secrets. So some of the things she discovered from talking to him was that he fixated on, on anything bound or knotted. He was obsessed with knots and rope and stuff like that. He loved abandoned silos and would call them castles and was would fantasize about torturing women in a in silos. He loved the number three. He uh, created this image of himself as a hunter or a predator. And um, he basically had like a normal life and times when he quote unquote went dark. And he called that serial killer inside of him the Minotaur. And this reminds me of, of course, Dexter, the dark passenger that he always talks about. Like they have a, a out facing life that can be normal. And then they have other times where they go dark. And it's almost like those are two separate people. And that one doesn't really have to be held accountable for the actions of the other. Also, they say that media really contributed to Dennis Rader's uh, psychosis, I guess. Like he basically coverage of other serial killers like Ted Bundy and Jack the Ripper and stuff. It gave him like role models and he wanted to achieve their level of recognition and notoriety. He also claimed that 
like Ted Bundy and Jack the Ripper and Son of Sam and all of these serial killers were driven by something called Factor X, which he thought was like a supernatural element that only these serial killers like possessed. But it's fully something he made up and uh, he wanted it to be this deep psychological mystery. And then a talk, according to Dr. Ramsland, she's like, I call it a trajectory towards violence. It's the combination of his unique sexual impulses, desire for fame and delusions of a spy-like double life. Uh, intersecting with his fantasy life and more, most practically the opportunity to commit murders. So all of this contributes, but all of this is like pretty obvious. There's no X factor. There's no special power that you have to make you a serial killer. And that's like what he was trying to, you know, claim. And, you know, sadly he did have a, a, a wife and, and two kids and his daughter, Carrie, I watched an interview with her where, you know, she talks about how she's still written, she still writes to her father and has now forgiven him, but she still struggles to reconcile him with the BTK killer. And she always says, like, my dad's a good guy. Like, I, you know, he, we were a normal American family, is what she says. And that could not be further from the truth. And that is the story of the BTK killer, which of course has much more. And is he still alive? Has, is he still in prison? Yeah, he's still in prison. I wonder if he'll listen to this podcast. <laughs> if you do, fuck you, bro. But he's probably excited that we're talking about him. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, he did reach. I mean, Ted Bundy is like so fucking famous, but he did reach some notoriety. BTK is pretty well known. And it's wild because I, I, he might be out still if he had never gotten the hankering for fame again in 2004. You know, he might still be just living his life. Yeah, I recently saw a TikTok and it was um, this black woman and she was talking about how white America is like so obsessed with talking about black on black crime. But she's like, um, you guys are obsessed with white people that murder white people. Yeah. Like you make them celebrities. You talk about them like we're talking about it all the time. And yet you keep focusing on black on black crime when like truly you're all killing yourselves constantly and yes. loving it. <laughs> loving it um so that was a good so point funny. like you know the internet has some stuff thanks Kara, for doing that um wildly blind spot for me so happy oh yeah happy um to get i just this. remember reading all about it when he was like found again the disc and i was like what a moron like i just can't believe but it's also like yeah yeah, if he had just stayed silent on underground, it's possible that they never would have found him just because he lived in a time of D of no DNA and, you know, that kind of shit. So anyway, we've got a really, really lovely interview coming up for you guys. So hopefully that will cheer you up after all this murder talk. <laughs> Okay, we are so excited for today's guest on the episode. We've had Emmy winners, we've had Grammy winners, and of course today we have another in our long line of Tony winners. She's a Tony Award winner for her role as Linda Lohman in the 1999 production of Death of a Salesman. She's been on everything from Roseanne to Christmas with the Cranks, but you know her as the poor victim Jeanette Henley. Uh, please, everyone, check out our chat with Elizabeth Franz. We feel really honored to be talking to you. You were incredible in this episode. And the fact that you won a Tony from Death of a Salesman is, it's just, uh, we're very impressed and we're really excited to talk to you. 
Thank you. Are there any stories or any moments that you remember from filming this episode of Law & Order that you'd love Uh, to share? I certainly do. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You're being stuck in a fridge. (laughs) Yes. First off, I arrived uh, while I was shooting a film in California. I arrived in New York, and the script I had to say you know, it doesn't make sense here because I have met him before. And if I let him in, I'm going to know who he is. And they looked dumbfounded. They never thought of that. And uh, I, I said, so what you're saying is leave my brains at the airport, right? <laughs> And they said, well, that's a very good one. I, I, well, yes, leave your brains at the airport because I don't think the audience will pay attention. So, Oh, my gosh. That is a great point, though, because, yeah, if you've been attacked by this man, I then know. you would know what he looks like. Yeah. Of course. So uh, anyway, we proceeded to do it. The man <laughs> attacked me again roped me up and put me in a refrigerator in the Brooklyn dump. Yes. And so in comes the ambulance, the fire department and all, and they uh, get me out, put me on the stretcher, and off we go. Yeah, and then they say, well... Thank you very much, Elizabeth. And they started to applaud, as they always do for any guest star. And they said, we'll have a a nice rest of a shoot in California. And I said, excuse me, I have to catch a plane. I need to have a shower. I've been in this refrigerator (laughs) for about a half an hour on and off with takes and lights and everything. And they said, oh, a shower. And so, of course, the only camper they had there was for the star. And so they said, well, you can use her camper, which I did. And then I had to rush to get to the airport and after having a shower, and um, I went off to shoot my night shoot for the Christmas with the cranks. Oh my God! In California. <laughs> so, yes, those those are the things I have to say about that. I was going to say you don't just get put onto a stretcher; you do get carried onto a stretcher by Christopher Maloney. Yes. So, how was that? Was he attractive? <laughs> it was. Uh, they they were all very very nice. I have to say, very nice. You spent um, a lot of your career working in New York. Do you prefer like kind of a trite question? But do you prefer New York or LA in terms of living and working or stage and film? Do you have a favorite? Um, they're so different. I love, of course. 
uh, working in a play because you create a family, whereas the others, you go in, you meet the stars, like on um, Harrison Ford, I, I did a film with, and and you go in, you meet, but he's not there. He's off with the director flying his plane. <laughs> and each one of them is having a contest of whose plane to use in the film. <laughs> and so uh, finally they arrive and I was called to get into makeup at six o'clock. And it's a Friday and they've been shooting all week. And everybody is grouchy because they want to leave. And I said, you guys are so unreal. I mean, you're, you're flying your planes all afternoon. Now you want me to get and do the only love scene I've ever going to do in my life. <sighs> and with angry cameramen. And all. Oh no. And I said, please, why don't we do it on Monday or rearrange whenever you want to do it, but not now. And so they said, well, oh, and, and <laughs> the cameramen are all applauding me and saying, here, here. <laughs> and I say, well, what do we think? And they say, Okay, we'll we'll do it another time. Wow! So, yeah, what a hero! Yeah, you were ahead of your time because you know that right now there's this big IATSE strike with the crew members and everything because yes, they're I demanding know. to not work these late. Yeah, so you were ahead of your time asking for fa more fair treatment to the crew. Oh yeah, oh did <laughs> I mean they had a, a a whole a week of terrible shoots. I mean they had to wait. For, for a ship to come in, they suddenly wanted a ship in the background. You know, <laughs> and, and and all these hours, they were working almost uh, 20 hours a day that week. Wow. It was incredible. Anyway, so, yes, uh, I do love working in the theater because... I have a family. I get there. I know the circumstances. And there we are. And I, I know yeah. the actors I'm working with, like Brian, Dennehy, and et cetera. Um, yeah, and so. he, he he had a huge part on an SVU uh, episode as well. So he's also been on the show, yes. as I'm sure have many of your um, colleagues from the theater. Yes. We were nominated for um, an Emmy for uh, Death of a Salesman, Brian and myself. And we were invited to a big party with the creator of both of those episodes. And the man, I kept calling him Dan and not his real name. And because he said, every uh, New York actor has been on my shows. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, Dan, but not me. I have never been on your show. And that's <laughs> when, when uh, they said, you haven't. And I said, no, I haven't. 
And so that's when they invited me the first time on Law and Order. Oh my gosh, what a yeah. dream. That's like, <laughs> yeah, I know. You got to ask for what you want. Yeah, that's amazing. I do have a selfish question, if that's okay. Um, oh, sure. I would love, you know, you've been working in show business and le- like for so long, and I would love to hear some big lessons that you've learned just um, in show business. I always say to young actors when I talk to them, never take no for an answer because you will hear no many, many times. Whether you're a character actor like myself or you're the lead, or you will hear a lot of no's, but don't take no for an answer. Replace it with, yes, I'm going to show you. And that's, that's, that's the biggest thing I have to share. But I've had a wonderful career, and I am so thrilled to have, since I've been 19 years old, to work in show business. Another show that you've done that I'm a huge fan of, and I remember your part so vividly, is Roseanne. Um, How was it working with the live audience and being on that show? I had never seen it, and I was asked to go out on a Tuesday, and I hadn't seen even that week. So (laughs) I went out, and I fell in love with her. I just knew she was a woman who knew exactly what she did well. And to not take no for it, not take anything and and say, excuse me. And so finally after, and I, I had to go back to New York to do another play. And we had done three Roseannes and they wanted me to stay on and do a couple more and I couldn't. And so she um, she said, really? For a Broadway show, you want to go back? And I said, yes, I do. And she, you can't probably say this on television, but um, or, but she sent me for opening night, a wonderful cake. And it had a, a penis on it. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. In full bloom and bloom, and 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 she said, "It's all for art's sake, darling. All for art's sake." And that was the name of my care, my uh, husband's name on the on the show that I kept kissing his dead picture. So <laughs> yeah, she she wow. she was a piece of work. Did you eat the cake? Was it good? <laughs> Yes, well, well, I can't eat sugar, but everybody said it was for opening night. They loved it. Yes. <laughs> wow, what an amazing guest. She's so so wise and ahead of her time with the uh, yeah, support for the crew. I don't think I'm going to make it to her age. 
<laughs> so, um, uh, what did we That's learn? That. Well, let's let's post mortem this classic, iconic episode that was very, very movie esque. I mean, I know I think we we know one thing is that Lisa does not appreciate a punny serial killer. We don't yeah. want your riddles. We don't want your jokes and your puns. No, it's like be evil or want attention. I don't know. I just I can't. <laughs> That makes no sense. Um, I don't know. I was thrilled to watch this episode. It's always a joy to see an SVU you don't really remember. Um, I think we learned that a lot of actors are method actors because the guy who played BTK, the BTK copycat in this episode, uh, is a creep on the show and a creep in real life, just marrying 17-year-olds and ruining their lives. So glad we didn't get him as a guest in case anyone was like, why didn't you get this guy? Do a quick Google search. Um, also, I feel like we learn this over and over again with the real crime, but it's like, keep an eye out for those fucking guys you think are the nice guys at your church with the wife and kids, because turns out they want to murder people and do things with their dead bodies. It's honestly quite silly how we give everyone the benefit of the doubt and are so open to humanity when truly I think everyone is a murderer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I really don't understand how we feel safe at all at any moment in time. It's confusing. Yeah. Be suspicious of everyone. And like how we exalt people. Like we think like, oh, these people are great. And it's like, no, they're not. No one's great. Going to no church doesn't make you nice. Right. Yeah. No. I don't know. But I did, did. Were you telling me this? But it's like kids shouldn't hate cops because if a kid does something does bad happen to a tiny kid, they have to call the cops. I wasn't saying that, but it kind of makes some sense. You know? Yeah. It's like a cab forever. But then if like your kids lost in the mall, they can't be like a cab to the cop. <laughs> like, <laughs> but then if you're a small black child, like who knows? They might arrest you. So I don't know. Right. Right. I don't know. Everything is too much. Like, I'm over it. I just honestly want to crawl into my bed and never leave again. Yeah, and that's our Thanksgiving message to you. Just don't go out of the house because everyone you know is probably a secret murderer. Yeah, even your family. I bet your fucking aunt didn't wash her hands before she made the turkey and you're going to get diseases. Like, that's <laughs> honestly... No one's washing their hands. Everyone's a warning about salmonella from Lisa Trigger, everybody. You know what's cool about my life is no one expects me to make anything for Thanksgiving. And I love that. <laughs> well, we're doing Thanksgiving with um our mutual friend and our kids and stuff here in LA. And they do a bunch of cooking because they're Midwestern. And I'm just like, what can I order from a catering company to pick up? Like, I'm not cooking anything. What are you ordering? I think I'm going to take care of the pies and I'm also going to get like a mac and cheese and like biscuits or something that's a little Southern for Jared. Where are you ordering everything? I don't know. I was thinking about this place in Highland Park, but now I think I'm going to rethink it and go somewhere else. Oh, wow. I don't know. If you have any suggestions, let me know. What's your pie? What's your ultimate number one pie? Um, I don't know if I have a number one. I would say pecan. I do like a pecan oh. pie. Yeah. I'm a later in life pecan adopter. Yeah. I never knew I liked it. To me, that was like, that's my mom's pie. Like, that's what she gets at Thanksgiving. I'm not doing that. And like, now I've had it as an adult. And I'm like, what the fuck was I sleeping on pecan pie for so long? It's like candy. Yeah, it's like a bottle of syrup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've made it. It's like pretty wild. But I love a fruit pie. I, li I, like, a, I like a cheesecake. <laughs> I like a pumpkin cheesecake. Oh, I mean, same. But girl. I'm a banana cream coconut. Like, I'm a cream pie girl. Do you like, in the sort of creamy vein, I like citrus pies like key lime oh, yes. and um, lemon meringue. 
which are sort of custardy. I don't need meringue, but I love a key lime pie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to work at a restaurant that had great key lime pie, and I partook. I really enjoyed it. This is definitely turning into a pie thing. What do you think all of our SVU people are doing for Thanksgiving? I don't know. Let us know. We'll probably be, like, putting up some fun content on the Instagram, so if you're not following us on Instagram, go ahead and give us a follow, because we're going to be bored and putting up some shit over Thanksgiving, I'm sure. Well, I'm also excited, because my sister got her kitchen redone, so I get to see the new kitchen. Ooh. That's probably not exciting for most of us. Wow. (laughs) But it took, like, five months. Like, contractors broke everything, stopped in the middle then the contract a uh, new contractors took a month to find and then their kids got covid and that like this is why i'll never renovate anything i'll literally move <laughs> out of a house before i like do a renovation it sounds like a fucking nightmare well it's just like it's a kind of like the airport that i mentioned up top it's like to think that something's going to be done within a time frame is stupid. Yeah. To think that you're going to be under budget is stupid. So if you go into it knowing it's a nightmare, guess what? You'll be a little bit more relaxed. Yeah, that's what I say about traffic in LA. Just get in your car and get a podcast on and just know that it's not going to be fun if you have to get from Highland Park to Venice. Yes, you know? people act and say they're like, ugh, the traffic. I'm like, is it five o'clock and you're going from the east to the west side? What do you want? Move yeah. to fucking rural Kansas. What are people <laughs> thinking? It's it's like these losers move here to make it in Hollywood and are overwhelmed by the traffic. As someone that lived in New York and I'm from Chicago, I'm like, I drove from Skokie to my hair salon job because I had a DUI and I couldn't have a license. Okay. Every, you know what I mean? Like I was taking trains for hours, driving for hours, living with my parents. Like what are people having sit in your car? Shut up. Yeah. Yeah. Don't live in a city. It's a privileged problem to sit in traffic. Um, Although I guess I guess you sit in traffic on a bus too, but whatever. Oh my god, my favorite was I was flying on Thanksgiving once, and I heard a guy wanting to switch seats, and I go, "Are you? What's wrong with you? Do, like, uh, you want to switch seats on Thanksgiving? The flight is sold. Yeah, the flight is sold out. You're not switching seats, sir. <laughs> Why are you wasting everybody's time? It is." I don't know. I, I, I'm telling everyone to be calm, but I'm losing my mind. It's just like people expecting not annoying things. I mean, annoying things to be not annoying. I don't understand. Yeah. Because if you go into it thinking the worst, guess what? You're going to be pleasantly surprised. Also, eat an edible. That's a that's the biggest advice I have. Okay. Well, that man is probably a serial killer, which is a great transition into today's What Would Sister Peg Do? Our weekly segment where we direct you guys to a website, a book, an article, an organization, something that can give you more information on the topic that we touched on today. And this week, we're highlighting um, a book by a... Um, Oh gosh, I don't know if she's a profiler. We said it in the episode. We talked about Dr. We talked about Catherine Ramsland in the episode. So we want to direct you to her book, Confessions of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. So if you're interested in more BTK info, Ramsland worked with Rader to analyze his drawings, letters, interviews, and the codes and examine his motivations. Um, and she presents an intelligent, original, and rare glimpse into the making of a serial killer. So check that book out. And uh yeah. And next week we will be covering the episode Poison. 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 Po- poison. <laughs> I wish I wasn't tone deaf. I would have sang poison how I wanted to in my heart. Um, and that is season five, episode 24. The episodes are on Hulu. They're on Peacock. And hopefully you you figured out how to get your VPN sticks and uh, for our international listeners And thanks for listening. Have an amazing Thanksgiving if you partake. Um, We know it's uh, bad. They're bad. It's bad. America's bad. But (laughs) I I won't. Just have a nice meal with your family. I want to eat. Yeah. And if your family sucks, fuck your family. 
you know? Go get drunk with your friends. And if you are just doing whippets alone, it's okay. You could do yeah. whippets alone. <gasps> I have to talk to you about whippets. Bye. messed up is an exactly right production if you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com follow the podcast on instagram at that's messed up pod and on twitter at messed up pod and follow us personally at kara clank and at glitter cheese as always please see our show notes for sources and more information thank you so much to svu Superfan and our incredible producer hannah kyle creighton and to our sound engineer and personal hero annalise nelson and to henry kapersky for our theme song to carly jean andrews for our artwork thanks to our executive producers georgia hardstark karen kilgariff Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. <laughs>